Amen. Thank you. Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 26. We are moving with Jesus to the cross, and uh, we have talked about how Jesus handled disappointment and how he has handled other aspects, personal aspects of the cross. And we take today the subject on how Jesus took betrayal. And I want you to turn in Matthew 26 to the experience of Gethsemane, because here is perhaps one of the best-known examples in all the world in the knowledge of man, and it comes from the Word of God in Jesus' experience at Gethsemane headed to the cross. He has just completed his discussion with the disciples at the Passover feast. And the Bible says in verse 36 that Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And then he moved twice more deeply into the garden. He took with him Peter, James, and John, the sons of Zebedee, who had also been with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. And then finally he moved a third time all alone, all by himself, into the inner garden. How did Jesus take betrayal? Good question. As a matter of fact, it's a good question to ask. What is betrayal, anyway? What is it? Well, the word literally that's translated betray in the Bible means to be given up to or given up with, a parodidomai. It, it is often translated deliver, but it is... Uh, it is literally to give away with, to give somebody away. The story is told in the biography of LBJ that uh, Lucy was being married. The Washington church was packed, full of dignitaries. Every VIP in Washington was there. And Barbara Walters was outside, and uh, she couldn't get any information because the doors were sealed. She couldn't get in. And while the wedding was going on, she talked about what a beautiful day it was and how nice the weather was and all of that. Finally, the doors opened and a man came out, the first man out. And uh, she put a microphone to him and said, uh, can you tell us the wedding? I'm Barbara Walters from NBC. And the man said, no, I won't even talk to you. I'm Frank Stanton, the president of CBS. <laughs> now that's rejection but it may not be necessarily betrayal. <laughs> and there is a difference. To be rejected is just a tad different from being betrayed. To be betrayed is to be delivered up. We've had two cases of this in the United States in the last year and a half. A man by the name of Ames, do you remember that story, is convicted of delivering the names of counter-spies in Russia to the Russians for a price. That's more than rejection, class. That is betrayal. He delivered up their names. He delivered up their addresses. He delivered up their codes. And as a result, some 21, at least we know of, some 21 counter-spies lost their lives because one man sold out his country and betrayed his fellow CIA agents. 
that's a betrayal. The godly model that Jesus gave us is found here in Gethsemane. How do we take betrayal? There is not a person in this room, perhaps, who, if you would think back on your life, could not imagine what it's like to be betrayed. You were betrayed. Now, I believe there's a difference in that and rejection. And let me give you three characteristics of betrayal. First, betrayal is unexpected. It comes from a source from which you would least expect it. Imagine that you have been betrayed in a confidence that you told somebody. And you say, I would never have thought he would have told that. I don't, uh, I don't, if somebody walks into my office and says, now, I, I, you need to promise you'll never tell. I don't ever make that promise. I don't, so I don't ever have to betray a confidence. I don't ever make that promise anymore. And the reason I don't is if you walk in and tell me you're about to kill your wife, I'm going to tell. You get that? You come and tell me, don't promise not to tell. Then you tell me you're going to rob Wachovia. I'm going to tell. Amen? You, you just might as well know this. Don't even ask that of me. I'm going to tell. And that way you're not totally unsuspecting. It is unexpected. Secondly, betrayal is usually undeserved, or at least we feel it is undeserved. We say, what did I do to that person to deserve betrayal? And thirdly, betrayal is unreasonable. It makes no sense. Why would a man like Ames, for $370,000 or whatever he got, why would a man like Ames betray his entire country and his fellow CIA agents and deliver them up by giving their names to the enemy? Why would he do that? It doesn't make any sense. I couldn't live with myself. And I think now we're discovering that he couldn't live with himself either in the long run. Now, there's only one difference here in Jesus' betrayal and ours. And there's nothing we can do about that. Our Lord was all fully human and all fully divine. Not half human and half divine. And I confess to you, in the story of the passion of the cross, there is no easy way to say, now, this is the human Jesus and this is the divine Jesus. But somehow, Jesus did know, because he was the Son of God, that Judas Iscariot would betray him. Now hold your hand here and go to John 17. Look at this for just a moment. For in John 17, he is called, Judas is called the son of perdition in John 17, 12. It is in the high priestly prayer. Jesus is thanking the Father that all those that the Father gave to him, the disciples, he has kept. And he says, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition. Now the Hebraism, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now the Hebraism is this. When you call somebody the son of perdition, or as Paul calls the Antichrist, the son of lawlessness or the man of lawlessness, you mean two things. First, it relates to the person's nature. Uh, the person's nature. He is, uh, and his character. He is by nature perditious. He is by nature a betrayer. He is by nature a man who's going to give up 
the valuable in order that he might have the urgent. And secondly, it speaks of the person's destiny. This is what's going to happen to him. He is going down to judgment. This man is condemned. So there is one little difference, and that is that in the betrayal of Judas, of Jesus by Judas, our Lord knew that the Scripture would be fulfilled. And at the Passover meal, he said, one of you, one of you shall betray me who is sitting at this table with me. Now, I want to speculate just for a moment. To this point, Jesus has calmly faced everything about death. When uh, he talks with Peter, he says, Peter, it is necessary that I go to Jerusalem and that I suffer and that I die. There's no grief, there are no tears, there's no weeping, wailing, or gnashing of teeth. He just calmly says it. Now, can you imagine, can you speculate with me for a moment, why is Jesus suddenly overwhelmed with the grief? All of a sudden, this is very critical to Jesus. I think it may well be because of the personal grief he was going to suffer in the betrayal of a man in whom he had invested his life. And for that reason, the grief of the cross and the pain of the sacrifice is intensified by the personal sense of betrayal. If you've ever really been betrayed, it hurts a long, long time. So how did Jesus take betrayal? And how do you and I take betrayal? I wish I could snap my fingers and say we're going to live in a better world and do away with the nature of human nature and you'll never be betrayed again. But chances are, young people, as somewhere in your life, you are going to sense that you have been betrayed. Somebody gives you up. Somebody uh, betrays you. Somebody turns their back on you and causes you grief and harm by what they do and say. Rejection may be more passive, but betrayal is always active. The person who's doing the betraying usually delivers you up in some way or causes you some grief and some pain. Now, I want us to look at four things out of the narrative. It comes, it just leaps at you out of the text. The four things that instruct us in Jesus' model. And uh, they are uh, four words. Support, submission, and uh, then we'll get to strength and then the sovereignty. And I want you to see that these are the four things we focus on. But now before we even look at the first one, at support, I want you to understand this. When you read the story of Gethsemane, the one thing Jesus did not focus on was the betrayer. Now, let me say that again. Hear this, all of this, in light of one fact. Jesus did not focus on the betrayer. Now, if that had been myself, I would have... Um, I would have gone into the Garden of Gethsemane and I would have said to the disciples, I want you guys to gather around and pray. We really got a problem in our, in our 12. And the problem is Judas Iscariot. And let's start praying for him. Let's pray that God will change him. Let's pray that God will get even with him. Let's pray that God will take care of him. Let... Isn't that what you would have done? 
I dare say nearly every one of you, if you knew somebody was about to betray you, you would call a prayer meeting and you would focus on the betrayer. Oh, we've got to pray for him. It's terrible what he's doing. How could he have done that? We go into a, a psychological analysis of ourselves. What did I do to deserve this? Why, why is he doing this to me? Jesus never asked a question like that. He didn't even focus on Judas. In fact, he only mentions him when you get down to verse 45. He says, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. That's all he ever mentions about the betrayer. And if you and I are going to learn how to navigate in this world like Jesus lived in this world with men of sin and women of sin all around, we must take this posture. Let me see everything done to me in this light. I must not focus on the person who is doing this to me. Get your focus off the betrayer. There is no prayer list for Judas, no prayer chain for Judas. There is no gathering of the disciples. Jesus simply leaves it alone. And that's always the first step in handling rejection or betrayal of any kind. Just leave it alone. Leave it alone. Drop it and bury it somewhere and let God deal with that person because vengeance is not yours. Whose is it, class? It is mine. And God said, you let me take care of that. I will repay. And I would rather, I don't know, <laughs> I would rather be in God's hands than anybody's hands I know. Whether I'm the betrayer or I'm the one being betrayed, I would rather be in God's hands. And when David was given a choice, a plague, and, uh, and trauma for his numbering of the people, he cast himself on the mercy of God. <laughs> and that's always good advice. Now let's look at the four things once we get that set aside. The first thing Jesus looked for was support. When you're betrayed, the first thing you need is to know that somebody is with you. Look at verse 38. He said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here, and underline this, watch with me. When Jesus was being betrayed, the most important thing to him was to have his disciples at least watching with him. No focus on blame. No focus on Judas. The focus is on what I have, not what I don't have. The focus is on the disciples that are with me, not the disciple that is not with me. Let him go. Why do we have such trouble giving up? I remember standing out in the lobby one day and one of our ladies said, Pastor, I've just sent the last of my, my four children off to college and now I'm all alone and standing right behind her is her husband saying, what about me? <laughs> hey, Mrs. Empty Nest, don't focus on what you've got at UNC or at Catawba or, or, or at Duke. Focus on what you've got here with you now. Your husband is there. Surely you didn't think those kids were going to live with you the rest of your life, did you? I didn't want mine to, did you? <laughs> I mean, I raised them to kick them out of the nest. 
Make them fly. Jesus focused on a prayer meeting with what he had. Come and pray with me. I need you. I cannot say this enough. Dennis, I need you. And you need me. And you need me. And I need you. And eternity, you need somebody praying for you. You can't hack it on the road by yourself. It's dangerous out there. You're vulnerable. We can't do without each other. I think the most important thing when I go through a crisis is knowing I've got somebody around me praying for me and hanging in there with me. You say, well, what does that have to do with betrayal? I don't know exactly how it works on us, but I'll tell you, even Jesus in his human nature knew that that's exactly what he needed. That blows my mind. The emphasis in Jesus' life was on getting through the crisis, not... <laughs> Not avoiding it, but how do I get through it? That's what Jesus is talking about. Come and pray with me. I want to ask you a question. If Jesus needed someone to pray with him to get him through a betrayal, and he's the divine son of God with all the resources that God call upon, how much more do you need exactly the same thing? you hear what Walker said? I appreciate y'all sticking with us and praying with us. We've had some phone calls from here to Atlanta in which I didn't know whether he was going to make it or not. <laughs> and, and he made it. But we make it because we don't do it by ourselves. Jesus was not worried about blame. He was worried about getting through. He wasn't worried about just avoiding. He was looking for support to get him through the crisis. Making earnest prayer in a time of crisis always gets us through. Making earnest prayer in times of temptation always produces strength in a time of weakness and resilience in a time of discouragement. Don't take prayer and support lightly. I went by and saw Raymond Hayes twice this week. He lives on the corner where I turn to go in to my little neighborhood that is otherwise shut off. There's only one entrance in, and I have to go right by his house. He has a serious form of cancer. But I've only been by there about two times this whole week when I didn't see at least three automobiles in his driveway or parked on the front of the road because he has got support. There are friends and people who are there helping Helen. They're praying with him. They are standing, standing around that bed. They're sitting in that living room. If that's all they can do, you and I have got to have support. And Jesus said, come, pray with me. That's the greatest thing you can do. And then I hear some of you say, well, all he did for me was say, I'll pray for you. Brother, I don't know whether we can do anything else if we can't pray. And when we pray, I'm not sure that it's, a, it's, uh, it's matched by anything else. Giving money, giving advice, giving counsel, calling a doctor. Nothing is as valuable as the people of God standing together when they're betrayed in prayer, through prayer. The disciples should have stayed awake. The greatest thing they could give Jesus was prayer support. And that's why he was so disappointed when he came back and said, could you not watch with me? 
How long did he pray? Right there. Could you not watch with me how long, class? You remember? One hour. In verse 39, he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now, secondly, Jesus' model for getting through betrayal is submission. He is going to fall face down in verse 39. He fell on his face and he prayed. Now, to show you how alone he felt, look at this. In the Lord's Prayer, he said, let's pray our Father. But in the prayer of Gethsemane, he prays my Father, which would indicate that now he sees himself as standing all alone in this crisis, as it were. Though he needed their support, they let him down. Notice his posture. He falls face down on the ground. If we give an invitation and somebody came and fell face down on this floor, the welcome center, the information center is going to call the EMT and they're going to come in with an oxygen tank and think that he has conked. But Jesus fell face down on the floor prostrating himself before God in submission to the will of God. Because again, his emphasis is on getting through. If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but thy will be done. He was in submission to, the, now if there's any other way. God, if there's any other any, any other method by which the sins of the world can be atoned for, let it be. But if not, let me just be in submission to your will. Some of you are as strong-willed as I am, and you have a tough, tough time with submission. I remember doing a family life conference down at First Baptist Church in a large city in this state. And I had just brought a seminar message on submission. I'll never forget as long as I live, this woman got me in the hall and backed me up against the wall. And she shook her finger in my nose and said, I want you to know I'll never be in submission to any man. <laughs> and I said, yeah, 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 yeah yes, ma'am. And then I looked at her left hand to see if she had a wedding band on. And sure enough, she didn't. <laughs> and I said, honey, if that's the way you feel, just keep it that way. One of the great characteristics of Jesus was submission. He's the son. He was there with the father before the beginning, but he was in submission to the will of God. And the emphasis was on getting through it. Now, what is he saying when he says, not my will, but thine be done? I want to show you something. Go back to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. 2 Chronicles chapter 7. And I want you to take this verse that you've read many times, and I want you to look at it altogether differently. Now, if I'm about to die, I'm going to be asking, Lord, take care of my wife. God, take care of my family. Lord, don't let, uh, don't let uh, 
some handsome guy come along and marry my wife and take my insurance money and run off to the Virgin Islands with her. Um, I'm going to be praying, asking all these things from God. Now watch what the formula for revival says. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now, our version of this is this. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my hand. Isn't that what we mostly pray for? My hand. God do this. God do that. God get rid of this person. God take care of Judas. God do this. Wait, 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 wait. That's not the formula for revival. There's nowhere in the Bible where we're taught to seek the gift until we sought the giver. We're not to seek the hand until we seek the face. We don't seek the foot of God. We don't seek the head of God. We don't seek the ear of God until we seek the face of God. Why? Face represents the favor and the pleasure of all of the unity of God and his character and everything he is. When Jesus said, not my will, but thine be done, he is seeking the face of God. Everything God has. Lord, I'm not telling you what to do. Lord, I'm not giving directions to you. God, I'm not giving you a formula. I just want to seek your face. When Will we forsake seeking God's hand and spend as much time seeking his face, his favor, his nature, his person, his personality, his holiness, his name, his face, as we do seeking his hand? I've watched myself this week, and every time I, I, I kneel or sit or whatever to pray, I'm, it's not long. I give God thanks, and then suddenly I'm asking for something from Him. And the Spirit of God is just chasing me this week. Mark, stop seeking His hand and start seeking His face. The promise is if we seek his face, Jesus in, the, in Gethsemane experience, betrayed by, by man, is seeking the face of God by submitting to what the Father wants. Not long ago, we had a whole Sunday night service of confession and repentance and praise. Do you remember that? And many of you told me what was so beautiful about that was that we were seeking God and God alone. The third way I think Jesus taught us how to face betrayal is he put a focus on strength. Look in verse 40. He came to the disciples and found them asleep and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. There it is an acknowledgement that what he wants from the Father it, for himself is what he wants for his disciples in the time of trial. Now, we've always made a lot of fun out of watch and pray. You know, when I was a boy at home, the boys were constantly with six boys in the family. One was always telling on the other. Mom, Mark didn't close his eyes. 
And the obvious answer is, how did you know? And the smart aleck answer is, I'm watching and praying. I was smart enough to know that when I was eight years old. <laughs> of course, I also remember the day my brother John, <laughs> John, mom asked him to pray, and he said, bless the meat, let's eat. And boy, he didn't get to eat much that night. He got it on the Cahutius Maximus. Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. For the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. You know what Jesus is saying? Oh, Lord, I need strength. He's not praying to him. Oh, Lord, uh, don't let me die. Lord, why don't you let Judas die? Judas couldn't die for the sins of the world. He had to pay for his own sins. He was praying for strength. Emphasis, again, is on getting through. Christ is a curse. He's going to hang on the cross. The writer of, of Isaiah said he was despised and rejected of men. Paul writes in Galatians 3, Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. Paul said to the Corinthians, He who knew no sin was made sin for us. Do you know why he was cursed hanging on a tree? Because in Deuteronomy 21, 23, when a man was convicted of a crime and then he was stoned to death for that crime, the people would hang his dead body from the tree after the price was paid. And that dead body hanging on the tree was a curse on Israel. And it was a sign to everybody, don't you dare do what this man did. Here he is as a display. But his body could not hang on that tree overnight and it couldn't be cut and allowed to touch the ground or the cursed body would curse the earth. And Christ bore the curse of sin for us. That is why Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3 that unless you keep the whole law the law can't save you. And nobody can keep the whole law but Jesus. And cursed is everybody that breaks the law. So Christ who kept the law was cursed for us so we don't have to keep the law and we're positionally right before God. You don't have to be a good moral man to be saved. It's impossible to be moral enough to be saved. That's Paul's whole argument in Galatians 3. And so Jesus is bearing that curse. And that curse upon him is what makes him so weak and he cries out for strength. Let me say it again. Making earnest work of prayer always produces strength in a time of weakness and temptation. Luke's account of the Gethsemane experience says that an angel came and ministered to him very much like the angel who ministered to Elijah. The angel came and ministered to Jesus. Do you, you ever feel like you had an angel minister to you? Just come and do exactly what needed to be done. I've had people tell me, in fact, just recently, somebody told me of an experience where they had help on the road and, and there was never anybody like that. And I mean, it, they, they don't know how it happened. And Christ is praying for strength. God has all you need to get you through the time of weakness. I laughed when I read that article in the paper. Did you see that article in the paper? about the fa American family publishers found God in Sumster County. And they wrote a, a computer letter to him at the First Assembly of God Church in Bushnell, Florida, about 60 miles north of Tampa. The pastor said, I always thought God lived here, but I didn't actually know. Now he's got a P.O. box here in Bushnell. Uh, and they wrote a letter. Uh, God, dear God, we've been searching for you. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> 
And uh, the message was uh, centered between two round seals, you know, on the sweepstakes. And they said, God, it's time for you to come forward. <laughs> if God were to win, the letter stated, what an incredible fortune there would be for you, God. Did you see this? Could you imagine the looks you get from all your neighbors when you win this? But don't just sit there, God. <laughs> uh, and the letter goes on and says, come on, God, and, and, get your, uh, uh, and get your sweepstakes in because you really need this. And, uh, and, and goes on to tell you about the letter. But it is, it is incredible. God winning $11 million as if he needed it. I'd like to know who that 10-year-old boy was that sent God's name into the American Family Sweetstakes for the First Assembly of God Church in Bushnell, Florida. Phillips Brooks said, Pray not that God would keep us from trial, but pray that God will make us stronger men in times of weakness and temptation. There's one last thing. And that is the sovereignty of God in verse 45. He came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, he who betrays me is at hand. Now Jesus says, Look, I want the will of God. That's what he focused on. This is God's sovereign plan. And I'm ready to go, and I'm going to die. Now, the cup that Jesus is going to suffer is not just the suffering, it's the wrath of God for sin. The key question when you're betrayed, the key question when you feel rejected, the key question when you're in trouble is not, oh God, go get the man who did this to me. Go get the woman who did this to me. The question is, God, what are you doing? What is your will? What can I learn? And how can I cooperate with your sovereign will? God's sovereign will is what he has determined. He has determined that every one of us are going to be made in the image of Christ at any price, whatever it takes. And Christ learned obedience through the things which he suffered. God's moral will is what we have a choice on. You can choose, his moral will is thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not steal. His wisdom will is matters where he gives you judgment. It's just use your common sense and all the principles of the Bible. But the sovereign will is God has guaranteed he's going to make you look like Jesus by the time you get to glory. You're going to be conformed to the moral and character image of Christ. And you'll not change that. You won't change that. If you're a believer, that's going to happen to you. Sometimes he'll use a betrayal to do it. And the question for us in every betrayal is, God, what is your sovereign will to be accomplished in this? And let me cooperate with your sovereign will. You say, but that can't be God's will. I know the problem you're going through can't be God's will, but it is a way station on the road to glory, which is God's will. And it's all right. He'll carry you through it if you stop fighting against the purposes of God in your life and yield to his sovereign will and let him form you and shape you and make you stop kicking against the pricks of conformity to the image of Christ. So if you've never been saved, that's God's will for you. I can tell you what his will is. You don't have to sit there and pray. I wonder if 
this is the day. Today is the day, the Bible says. And no matter how moral you've been or how good you've been, you cannot save yourself. If you've been betrayed or rejected, I can tell you, God's will is to take that betrayal and turn it into good in your life by making you, using it to make you, form you, shape you into the image of Christ. Don't kick against it. Follow the, the pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was yielded to the sovereignty of God. He looked to God for pouring strength into what was a very difficult situation. He took submission and fell on his face to create a character posture before God to get ready for the betrayal. And he brought his disciples with him because that's a key for us to have people praying with us as a support team. And today God calls you to take up exactly the posture that the Lord Jesus took. Some of you have been hurt. You've been betrayed. You've been rejected. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ has suffered all of that too. And he calls you to enter into the cup with him, to enter into the experience with him. His voice bids you to come out of that bitterness of betrayal and to say, I am not going to let it defeat me. I'm going to surrender it to God. I'm going to build a support team. I'm going to look to him for strength. I'm, I'm going to depend upon his will and let God, the sovereign God, do what he needs to do in my life. So I ask you to bring your betrayals and your rejections and your pains to the Father who has experienced them all through the Son. And when you read the story of the cross, you get the full gamut of human betrayal. Amen and amen. Let's stand in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the Word of God and His power. And we pray that you shall speak to each of us and impose upon our minds and hearts and souls the character model of the Lord Jesus as he goes to the cross and show us how to follow those steps, how to take those attitudes, how to grab those perspectives, but show us Jesus willing to go to the cross and take our curse, our sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. In Jesus' name, amen.